Hey loves, it's Tim here. Today's episode is me chatting to debut fantasy author Micah Yongo about his book Lost Gods, which I've been reading and, as you'll hear from the episode, thoroughly enjoying. It's a uh, it's a good old-fashioned adventure. It's uh, with, oh, well, it's, it's a really, really great story about a guy who's been trained to assassinate other people and then he graduates from his assassin's guild and all hell breaks loose and the rest of the story is just this rip-roaring ride through a fantasy world it's really good and um, I just really enjoyed getting the chance to talk to him now for those of you who don't write fantasy don't think that there is nothing in here for you I always think it's like it's actually one of the only opportunities if you don't read certain genres that you will get to to get that cross training and to get that breadth of knowledge if you don't read or write in these in these genres whether it be romance whether it be fantasy science fiction crime horror uh historical fiction literary fiction any of those things thrillers you need it's so useful to hear how other people approach these different story shapes different challenges partly just from a nosiness point of view but also because i think there's almost always some stuff that is common knowledge to people in one genre silo that is completely alien to people outside it and you we can cross train we can help each other we can reach across the aisle uh, i'm a fantasy author so of course i was dead into this but i would always recommend and it's great also hearing a course uh, but um the experiences of a debut author right we get to hear this whole process of coming up with a story and characters and how he's seen it through and now is working on a second book and i think if nothing else, that is that is hugely useful to hear someone who's now been through the process and is emerging into the world of being a published author, right? Because whether that's something you want to do, whether that's something you've dared to occasionally dream of, but you really, really don't think you could, or whether it's that's not what you're in the game for, I think it's really, really interesting to hear a little bit about one person's experience of what goes on and slowly over this the course of this podcast and over the various episodes we're building up this aggregate picture of what it's like to be a writer writing today and what it's like to be a storyteller that most ancient of human arts you know with the people that I speak to the reason perhaps that I feel this kinship with them perhaps the reason perhaps I get particularly excited in these episodes and I say oh my gosh I've learned so much is because these are these are my people I've got a, a bond with all of every single person I speak to because we are storytellers who love stories who doesn't and we make our living we make money that we can use to eat <laughs> we're trying to professionalize the art of bullshitting it's exciting and whether we're you know we're doing it full-time or whether you know it's just a one-off thing or any of those things I still have a real I, 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 it's kind of it's kind of crazy 
speaking to people who are doing the same thing it's it's just because it, you suddenly get a sense of how weird this thing is that we do and you know without being self-mythologizing kind of how magical it is and you will hear me in this episode have a few moments where i'm talking to micah and we just go oh my god it is like that right um so i really enjoyed talking with him and listening to his perspectives on fantasy writing on world building on creating characters and finding characters and discovering characters who have some stakes that they're keeping them in the story and i think that's obviously universally applicable in any whatever kind of fiction you're writing and also about how you have characters represent different themes different ideas different uh different ideologies how you can get kind of like your ideas about the world your ideas about different ideological positions and how instead of writing an essay you can turn that into a story where people with different philosophies are clashing or they are applying to divergent philosophies to the world and these things are getting tested really really great fun and as always I came away with unable to sleep because my brain was buzzing there was a billion things I wish I'd asked about there's a billion things that I wanted to go and think of so I, I hope that this is just going to be aside from making you want and I'll put a link in the show notes to Micah's book Lost Gods I hope that you will be inspired from listening to this to click on that and uh, get yourself a copy and support him support his career you know it, it may make such a difference when you make the choice to like reach out and support a debut author when you make the choice to reach out and support any author but particularly a debut author uh i think you know and the bottom line is i think you can listen to this episode and want to read the story so i'll put a link in the show notes and you can do that otherwise if you would like to support the podcast aside from buying the books of the authors we feature on, on here which i just think is you know if you're doing that then gosh bless you that's brilliant and i really appreciate it um oh there's a link to my novel the honors which is also fantasy and i think you'll enjoy uh historical fantasy set in 1935 norfolk which doesn't sound like the setting for an adventure but i think i managed to make it work <laughs> certainly a weird time and um, also there's a link to my coffee page which is just like a patreon but without repeating donations so if whenever you know if you ever feel like leaving a tip if you ever feel like chucking something in that allows me to keep going that allows me to keep chatting to other authors and spreading the good word about their work that allows me to look at you guys's uh, first pages and give you feedback that just allows me to keep doing this and covering all my expenses and costs from doing it uh you know if you can spare something i deeply appreciate it and it will genuinely help me out if you can't really don't worry about it you're so welcome here and just thank you for being about and listening right i'm not going to go on any longer than that i just want you to hear today's chat with uh, micah younger i hope you enjoy it even more than i did hello and welcome to death of a thousand cuts making you an awesome writer one cut at a time my name is tim clare and i'm so delighted to have you here today to um 
Well, it's not just me. That's why that's why I'm slightly more perky than I might otherwise be, because I'm here with. Well, I'm not here with. Uh, we're talking via the magic of uh, modern technology. Uh, I'm talking with Micah Yongo. How are you doing? I'm pretty good, thank you, Tim. It's 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 good to finally meet and talk. Oh my gosh, it's been such like it. It's been to try and get the kind of grand cross constellation of our schedules uh, happening so we can actually have a chat has been an epic, an epic struggle all of its own. It's been a saga, mate. Yeah, it's uh, been good, though. It's been good. I'm So there's a bunch of there's a bunch of stuff I want to talk about with you and talk to you about your uh, debut novel, Lost gods but i i'd like to start with the sort of painfully uh conventional question of um how did your relationship to stories and writing and like all the all the good shit that we really like where did where did it begin for you oh wow gosh you know it's a bit weird, actually. I, don't, I didn't really get into reading fiction or reading recreationally until into like my, my late teens, early 20s. But for me, I guess my first acquaintance with stories and with narrative was probably through comics, comics and cartoons, and uh, especially the X-Men growing up, actually uh, reading Marvel comics and getting into the cartoons. And I think I really got into the whole idea of like other worlds and fantasy and stuff of that nature when, I don't know, Weird things like um, Michael Jackson's music video for Thriller and oh. um, <laughs> and seeing, um, I'm thinking of this Ridley Scott film from back in the day in the 1980s, uh, Labyrinth, I think it was actually, um, and just different things like that, which just really kind of captured my imagination in terms of like, you know, weird imagery and, and stuff that was kind of... Um, yeah, outside of the box a little bit. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think through that, I was always really, really interested and engaged by the whole idea of fantastical worlds and context and stories. But in, in terms of actually getting into reading literature and reading fiction, that, that started in my late teens. <laughs> it's it's kind of amazing when... I, I think, like, as a... When, when I, you know when I speak to writers and when I'm asked questions myself, the pressure is to always like make up like a really, like a really like impressive, like literary answer for like, where did you get into writing? And you go, well, I was just, I was so taken by like Ulysses when I read it. The first time. But totally like, I think like a lot of the stuff that I started off, like just really hitting me was stuff that was kind of meant, for me right like it was like yeah. it was like saturday morning cartoons that yeah. would go hey you're allowed to tell stories about this you're allowed yeah. to be weird you're allowed to do mm. something that's entertaining or exciting or takes the everyday and you know like like, like thriller is you know is easily the it's easily one of the most kind of like spectacular bits of yeah. genre of, of the 80s, right? Oh my gosh. I mean, it's like the most cinematic music video ever. It's still probably my favourite track to this day. And I think Thrill was probably the first album that I really got a hold of. I was sort of like, um, I was really into Michael Jackson as a kid. And then when I saw the music video, I was just like, Shh, I was totally blown away. I was freaked out, <laughs> but totally blown away as well at the same time. Yeah, and 
because it's got I, I I really like that Vincent Price's bit on that on that song is listed as yeah. the Vincent Price rap, which technically yeah. <laughs> makes Vincent Price the best selling rapper of the nineteen eighties. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Which is, um, which is just um, it's just amazing. It's just so awesome. Um, so uh, you've done um, and and filmmaking is something that you've that that's something that's that you've done right like you've been behind the camera um for a bit so it's it's no accident that uh something you know like something in the visual medium and if i if i sound slightly awkward talking about this it's because i immediately am moving out of my area of expertise into (laughs) like even i'm an enthusiastic end user of uh tv and film right obviously Uh but immediately i'm like I feel like even camera feels like a technical term to me, but um, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about about that and mm. uh, working with yeah. visuals? Yeah, yeah, because I, I think I think in many ways actually, sort of videography was maybe my first kind of on ramp into the whole idea of narrative and storytelling. Um, but it was tri- well, strictly in a non-fiction sense, it was more in a j- journalistic sense and also doing like music videos and things for like different media outlets and things of that nature. And uh, yeah, the whole visual side, I mean, I guess it kind of goes back to the comics again. I-, I always really loved being able to have something that, some kind of imagery that was evocative, that sort of grabbed my attention some t- somehow, that um, engaged my imagination in some way. And so I guess it kind of evolved into an interest in photography and then into videography. And I think probably even in my writing, there's quite a bit of a, um, yeah, maybe a bit of a visual sensibility to the way I write as well, perhaps, which has come out of that as well. Um, I definitely, yeah. I definitely yeah. get in, in Lost Gods, there's definitely some, there's definitely some things that definitely feel like shots, right? Like I'm thinking uh-huh. uh, like where uh, Nathan is quite early on, where he's looking down onto this kind of waterfall and he's uh hiding that feels that feels very i mean i i know like the term like cinematic gets tossed around too glibly but there's something about the framing of that and the kind of like looking down and this kind of cascading waterfall and the light playing across it that really felt to me as i was watching it um well and i guess because i don't want to jump ahead too quickly into it but i guess also because he's an assassin and because he's often tracking people or hunting people or scanning a scene he operates very much kind of like a kind of like a cameraman is that is that nuts or like i don't know (laughs) i am making this up on the fly a little bit but do you know what does that make sense is that it does you know it does i think that's quite it's kind of true actually and it wasn't a conscious thing when i was writing it i wasn't really trying to like you know very um deliberately make it about experiencing the world visually primarily and stuff but it just sort of felt like the most natural way to do it and it's now looking back in retrospect where i can sort of read certain scenes and think oh actually yeah there is kind of a there's quite a bit of attention given to the visual aesthetic of the scene and of what's going on in that particular um, encounter and stuff um but yeah i think i think a lot of the time when i am writing i am thinking visually um, I mean, I love novels because you can get into the interiority of a character in a way that you just can't in, you know, films and movies and things of that nature. But um, I also love describing a scene. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's gonna because my feeling when I'm 
I'm reading a few comics at the moment. Like I'm working through like Rat Queens and My Hero Academia at the moment. And the oh, thing that I'm getting out of them is just intense jealousy of like how quickly like a couple of frames can oh. set in a scene. You can get a scene. I'm thinking, you know, as something as iconic as like the opening to Blade Runner, where oh. in just like a that shot, does so much heavy lifting for the rest oh, of the story. Absolutely. So <laughs> my question is what, what, how, like, st- <laughs> I'm very jealous of you getting to do like fil- films and even like with nonfiction, getting to do a couple of establishing shots, a bit of B-roll and create a, a world. What are the things that you can do in, I don't know, you've just started answering this in fiction. What were the like, things that fiction has allowed you to do that you couldn't do in film? Oh, scale, scale. And especially with fantasy fiction as well, because you there's so much freedom and liberty to sort of create these worlds and these contexts that are so far outside of anything that we would imagine in our own normal conventional context and lives that you just have a, yeah, it's just really liberating. And I think what you really get to do is just go wild a little bit in terms of the scale of things and in terms of like, um, yeah, the kind of structures and the kind of characters and the kind of scenes and the kind of experiences that you can hopefully take the reader through. Um, I love the fact that you can do things that are <laughs> that are epic. <laughs> yeah, I, I I had some uh, friends who uh, did a, wrote the script for a TV series and they had a scene like late in one episode where they just wanted like a tiny shot of um, a guy listening to the radio in the bath. And it turned out it cost something like £12,000 to make because they had to like cut a, to shoot it. They had to like cut like a hole in the wall to be able to get the camera in to shoot him in the bath listening or oh, something right. like crazy that like that for right. a shot. Yeah. And it's amazing like you're right like you have to like if you're going to do a epic fantasy one a lot of the locations just don't exist but then you need someone to scout it you need to be able to get there to film it you want that shot of someone trekking up a mountain you're going to need a helicopter <laughs> like yeah yeah can we i think like i'd really like you to give us not this not the elevator pitch but um what is uh, Lost Gods about because I'd really I'd love to just jump jump straight in and start talking about okay. it. That's okay, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'll do my best. I mean, I guess I guess Lost Gods is kind of a um, it's an epic fantasy thriller sort of set in this kind of pseudo Middle Eastern Asian African world, and it follows I guess the story of Nathan, who's the main protagonist, along with like a cohort of other young assassins who've been raised together by this secretive brotherhood called the Shedaim and. I guess the story follows them as they emerge into being fully fledged members of that brotherhood, going out, going out on their first mission. And um, yeah, I guess through a series of events, beginning to discover that the world is not absolutely everything that they've been taught or led to believe that it is. <laughs> yeah. It, I. The first thing I want to ask is. What did you did you do any? Did you do any research for this? Because it's like something that um, when I'm talking to like historical novelists and stuff like that, it's like very obvious, like, oh, you must have done research. But people imagine people who don't read fantasy imagine there's like you like you say, because you've got that freedom, you can just you you can just make it up. And yet 
I mean, either you've done loads of research or you are an incredibly competent bullshitter, which of course is an amazing, <laughs> like is a standard qualification for a writer. But one thing that I've noticed reading this is this is such a nerdy. Look, I'm I'm a, I played I I played Dungeons and Dragons, right? So I'm like I was really oh, cool. into this. I was on board right from the beginning. But like your writing about crossbows is I'm not selling it to like people who like there's there's so much more to it than that. It's not just a book about crossbows. But one detail that like made a lot of the weirder elements of the world real to me. You know how like was your like you you write very convincingly about crossbows and crossbow trajectories and how they function in rain and torsion and i just want to ask you this is just me scratching my own itch here like did have you done any research for it how did you get into that kind of sense of reality because it feels very visceral and real to me yeah i mean well i mean there was there was a fair bit of research and i think it's you know you kind of said it yourself there there's there's on the one hand like fantasy gives you this space where there is a lot of license but in order for it to actually feel compelling at least to me as a reader there has to be some some aspect of the world that feels concrete that feels recognizable that feels convincing and that feels real and I think um, for me really wanting to explore that whole kind of um, historical context that are in some way parallel or analogous to the world that I was looking to create and so I found myself reading about a lot of kind of Middle Eastern culture um, a lot of Middle Eastern religions as well and Far Eastern religions, also reading a lot about um, Asian African culture. And I guess for me, like the real kind of doorway into all of this kind of began with, um, <laughs> it kind of began with my mum. She used to tell us like these um, these kind of folk tales. Um, I didn't realise that they were folk tales at the time. She was telling us like these bedtime stories as kids, you know, growing up and stuff, just these things to get us to sleep. And probably when I was about 18, 19, 20, I found myself reading um, this really cool book, really cool novel by a guy called Chinua Achebe called Things Fall Apart. And it's about um, um, British colonialism sort of told from a Nigerian perspective, early part of the 20th, well, early part of the 20th century, going back before that. But anyway, in the story, there's a there's a couple of characters having a conversation and one character starts telling the story to the other character. And the story, I recognised the story, it was actually one of these tales that my mum used to tell us when we were kids. And I began to realise, oh, right, okay, these... These stories are actually part of this um, broader canon of African or West African in particular folklore and folk tales. And this whole kind of, um, I don't know, this whole kind of repository of mythology just began to open up to me and I became so interested in it. And that kind of became um, the doorway into wanting to explore these kinds of, this kind of milieu, this kind of world, I guess, in a way. So that was kind of like the way in. And then off the back of that, I found myself doing a lot of research trying to really kind of ground that world and use it as a nice context for the story hopefully what's yeah no i i i well can you because you, you the story moves through so many uh different environments as well it's very much kind of like a uh it feels epic in scope, but at the same time, it's very focused through. That's what I thought was. That's what I actually think is amazing about reading this is that you've managed to write something where it touches upon this wider world. It feels like it feels like Nathan could go in any direction, and the world's there, and there's people to discover, and there's stories to stuff discover, and yet he's such a motivated character. He's got. I mean, I. You know, it's up, 
I, I want to like hold back a little bit on some spoilers, but like he he gets like a fire lit under his ass really early on, and <laughs> yeah. he has to make some decisions, and he's kind of flung in at the at the at the deep end. Um, and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about um the other side of the I guess not the opposite of world building. But that kind of like interiority that you mentioned early on that novels allow you to do and how you went about taking this massive world with cultures and history and rules and kind of systems and, 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 and laws different to our own. And how you then take that, which you could go anywhere with, right? Like it's just absolutely mind blowing. You could fill a whole Wikipedia site with like stuff. And then you've got this one, you've got this one character in located in a time how did you end up how how do you right. take all of that and filter it through one person i think that was probably the thing that i found the most challenging to do because i did have this whole kind of because i was i was really kind of geeking out on the world itself and um, <laughs> wanting to explore that to a certain extent but at the same time trying to be attentive to the fact that it is about a character and it is about a certain set of events that he's experiencing and so i think for me i tried to use I think Nathan, for me, began to become sort of like a torchlight, I guess, in a sense, where he's kind of walking into these spaces and wherever he's looking is kind of dictating what part of the world that we get to see. So there's like a whole um, broader spectrum of the world that, you know, it's just not included. <laughs> it's for my own personal whatever, but it's just not included. But I really wanted to kind of dig into um, who Nathan is and what he's trying to pursue and some of the main, um, I don't know, underlying issues that are already in him as a character that the events that he encounters begins to sort of tug on it, I guess, in a sense. And so for me, Nathan was someone that I, I didn't feel like I had like a fully realised idea or understanding of who he is at the outset. I was kind of exploring and discovering him as I was writing the story itself. But for me, there was like a central thing that I always felt was a big issue for Nathan, which is the whole idea of family. And the whole idea of wanting to have a sense of belonging. And so that became, I guess, kind of the lens through which he was experiencing the events around him. It became the reasoning or what undergirded why he found so, um, certain things so important and more important than other things and sort of started to shape and dictate some of his, uh, some of his decisions. And it, yeah, I just wanted that to be like the main motivating factor, um, wanting family, um, experiencing things that were kind of compromising or jeopardizing his opportunity to settle into that and just feeling very very motivated to try and discover why these issues were happening and how to find a way to um to sort of have some kind of resolution i guess yeah because he's got he's someone who is like grown up with a very clear purpose like he's and and is has grown up like knowing what's expected of him and wanting to fill, fulfill that and also feeling slightly that he's that he might even be failing that and not living up to what he's supposed to be. And as you say, as the story goes on, um, he he's almost kind of like a investigative journalist or a private detective. Right. Like that. He that he's imme that immediately is in thrown into conflict with that and then starts to dig down into what he's been told and also get to discover the outside world. I wonder if you could, it's really interesting to me to say that you didn't know you weren't, he wasn't as clear to you as some of the other elements and you were discovering him by writing him. Can you tell me 
a little bit about that process and maybe one or two of the things that you found out or that maybe things that surprised you? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think for me, yeah, I'd say the things that I did know about him was that he cared about, well, as I was saying before, that he cared about family and that he cared about trying to do the right thing. Um, so that he, I guess, in a sense, doesn't necessarily have a stronger sense of of his own personhood or his own identity as you know some of the other characters, some of the other members of his of his cohort even, and that that's perhaps what kind of impels or drives his desire or his need, his necessity to try and find a way to do the right thing. And um, for me, yeah, it was kind of as the story was progressing, as the narrative was progressing, I felt like I was just learning different things about him through his interactions with with other characters and through his interactions with, I'd say probably especially Caleb. Because Caleb was kind of coming from this perspective of, listen, a very cynical perspective. Listen, the world is not what you've been taught. The world is not what you think it is. Um, reality isn't like that, you know, and morality isn't like that. And sort of challenging all of these various different aspects that have buttressed um, Nathan's sense of his own personhood up until that point and really forcing Nathan to try and um, discover a new framework to understand who he is, understand what he's meant to be about and understand what he should what, she, what he should ultimately care about and try to pursue in his life. And so I felt like there was it was kind of a bit of a, I don't know how much of this makes sense, but there was kind of like this kind of dialectical dialogue going, going, going on between Caleb's perspective of um, just a very kind of cynical, kind of more grimdark-esque take on the world versus Nathan's more hopeful or optimistic or naive perspective that had kind of been rooted in this this just kind of fundamental need for family and for wanting things to be a certain kind of way. And um, I think it was through them two knocking about together that I really began to discover more of who Nathan is. And Nathan, I really feel like, was kind of discovering more of who he is. It's a little bit of a coming-of-age tale, I guess, in a certain sense as well. So... Um, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. A, it didn't feel like a linear process, but it felt like a very interesting um, process writing him as the main character. Yeah, I, I always feel like books that I, books that I really uh, am able to kind of like get my teeth into, both as a reader, but also writing them. Right, are uh, ones where they're working out something, yes. and they're kind of more like an. They're more like an argument between at mm. least two people than a than a kind of like stump speech, right? That they, yeah. they that they've got conflicts in even something totally even something as simple as like you know Spider Man versus Doctor Doom. Doctor Doom will always come out yeah. with something where he'll say, you know, the leaders of this world are weak and full of hypocrisy, and you go, well, he's yeah. kind of got a point. Like yeah. you know, there'll always be like an element. It's 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 never interesting, mm-hmm. even if someone is supposed to be quote unquote the villain of a piece. It's never interesting unless something about what they've got to say mm. makes you stop and think. Well, all right, yeah. What's your answer to that? Like that's yeah. that's fair enough. And I, I just wondered if in writing this, you know, characters bouncing off each other, if that developed. If you're thinking, if you got any further with your thinking along those lines, yeah, it, I would say I would say that I found it as a really helpful exercise and space to sort of explore some of the things that I was curious about myself, and especially when we think about things to do with you know right and wrong and how we define that. And I mean, I know it's very these are very sort of um, very old hat transcendent themes that are definitely a part of this genre a lot, you know, but I, I think they're just, you know, they're endlessly interesting in 
fascinating to sort of explore and try to delve into. And so for me, I think the book definitely became a bit of a, a vehicle for seeking to do that. And not just between Nathan and Caleb, but I mean, again, I wasn't, I wasn't intending this as I was read, as I was writing it, but certainly looking back in retrospect, I can see that same kind of dialectic playing off with other characters, um, you know, Daniil and Joseph, Nathan and Caleb, various other characters throughout the world and throughout the story who are trying to ask questions about, um, what is the right thing? How do you define it? Who gives you the right to de uh, to define it or verify it that way? Um, and how do you deal with the whole idea of these things? Um, there not being necessarily a, a strict hierarchy about how we define right and wrong, you know? Um, so that was definitely like a bit of a, yeah, just an interest that I felt I was wanting and desiring to explore as I was writing through the story. Yeah. Is it? I think that's... It's so, and it's so, it's so fascinating within the story as well, because like the other thing is like that these aren't like dry debates in the story, right? They're, they're like, people are getting killed over them. And <laughs> well, like in, like in real life, right? Like yeah. people, things that are on one level can seem like just sort of like an interesting philosophical question. You know, folk, p folks are getting their mm. throat slit or like a crossbow bolt in the eye in defense or one of one or the other mm. position and i always think it kind of and it's yeah like the stakes are really really high in these for these questions and um i just wanted to i, I, I just wanted to ask are there any what have you what do you what have you are there people that you've been reading that have influenced this or people that you've been uh that you've been reading that you were using as sort of i don't know like 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 going yeah that's the that's the juice when i read this i yeah. get that feeling or yeah. that that does something that i love whether yeah. whether like you think lost gods is you know superficially similar to it or not something that yeah. that gives you the that little bit of kick that um can you think of yeah, definitely, writing. definitely. I mean, and again, I mean, Lost Gods is not similar to these examples, but for me, reading some of the stuff from Anton Chekhov, where a lot of his characters will basically just simply be embodiments of a particular way of seeing the world, <laughs> literally an embodiment of, of um, they'll just be like a surrogate or a proxy for a certain worldview. And watching the interplay between those characters is so fascinating and so interesting because you're it feels epic because you're aware of the fact that the characters are not just characters, they're also particular ideologies and they're kind of in conflict with one another and engaging with one another. And for me, um, stories like that, and I'm thinking also of, I mean, there's a great book that I, I read a few years ago called um, Black Man by Richard K. Morgan, which really sort of does this a lot as well, more in a kind of science fiction type of setting. But again, it's a it's a very ideas-driven novel. And for me, whenever I read ideas-driven stuff, it feels it feels epic. It does feel epic. It feels epic in a way that goes beyond just the physicality of the actual world. It feels epic because it's dealing with with stakes, with concepts, with ide ideologies that that yeah, that do carry so much consequence in our own lives, in our own world, you know, whether it's socio-politically or economically or whatever else and stuff. And so it feels like the implications of what a person believes in that story somehow matters more. And I, I always find those kind of books um, just so fascinating and interesting and engaging to read for me. And so I think there was some sense in which I was seeking to um, not emulate that, but that I was drawn to having a bit of a vehicle just for my own self as a writer and hopefully to draw a reader into that experience as well of, of, of asking questions, basically. Can you think of 
some things. This is where I kind of uh, do a hard pivot into um, how can we how can we uh, selfishly strip mine your um, hours and days of hard work for our own benefit. But are there some things that you've um, learned through the process of writing these book, this book in terms of craft, in terms of your own ways of working that you think you're going to take forward into future work, things you didn't know at the beginning that you're like, oh, this has taught me this about myself or my writing? Oh, I think... I think I'm always growing more and more aware of, I mean, this sounds really obvious, actually, it sounds super obvious, but I'm always growing more and more aware of how the way in which I'm consuming um, story shapes the way in which I create stories. And so um, there's some books that I just read for myself for fun, and then there's some kind of books that I'll only read when I'm writing. And um, um, just because I feel like they help me to get, I, I like to, so like when I was writing Lost Gods, I, I wasn't, I wasn't plotting out the entirety of the novel before I sat down to write. I was kind of writing on the seat, you know, from the seat of my pants to a certain yeah. extent. And for me, I do that because I like to occupy that space where I still feel like a reader when I'm writing. And for me, novels or films or stories that like I feel like sort of place me back in that headspace, I guess, um, where I feel like I'm able to see what should feel engaging or interesting from a reader's perspective. Those are the kinds of things that I really like to consume whilst I'm writing. And um, I think doing that alongside, you know, kind of, you know, um, I don't know, the other kind of, um, you know, sensible things, just like developing a routine around around stuff. Um, but yeah, doing that kind of thing where I'm, I'm more mindful or more intentional about the kind of content that I'm trying to take in, um, I find really helps me... Um, in terms of just maintaining that headspace and being able to write most effectively for me. That's something I'm still sort of learning and growing into, but it's it's something that I think really helps me. Yeah, I mean, of course, I wasn't suggesting that you... Um that you've perfected the art, you're like, you perfected the art of fiction in, in your Absolutely. debut novel, and now now you're gonna everything you write is gonna be easy and, and perfect. If it was, like I, I, I'm happy for you, I wouldn't. I would I'd be so jealous. But that's something when you talk about um sort of discovery writing or seat of the pants writing versus plotting, and I realise that they're two ends of a spectrum, and that few people do entirely one or yeah. entirely the other. Yeah. It's very exciting and there's all that kind of possibility in it. But there's also a lot of uncertainty. Actually, so many writers I know like wrote their first novel with a certain amount of discovery writing and then they get to the end and they go, oh God, I'm never going to do that again. Yeah. Next one, I'm going to like, I'm going <laughs> to lock this shit down and I'm going to pl plan the whole thing and it's going to be like military precision. I can relate to exactly that feeling, but yeah. <laughs> and so I want to ask you, and then, but then, right, this is the thing, then they do their second novel and actually they get blocked. They really struggle because they're trying to, they're trying to like rein it in. And, and then they're all about sort of avoiding mistakes versus discovering. And I, I want to ask you, how do you hold the line? How do you keep going and learn to be comfortable with all that uncertainty? You know, writing a scene where you might be thinking, well, I've, I've got no, I've got no idea how he's going to get out of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, I mean, it's, it's so, it's so interesting, especially now because I'm, I'm currently working on the sequel to Lost Gods, and so I'm finding that my process in terms of how I approach that is, is different, um, quite different from how I approach Lost Gods. I mean, part of that is just to do with like time and things of that nature because you're, 
at least when I was writing lost cause I wasn't necessarily writing at least not at the outset anyway with a, with an audience in mind I was simply just writing from a very personal space and for my own my own fun my own sense of pleasure and so trying to kind of carry that that um sense of play <laughs> Mm. that's been like the main thing for me is really trying to maintain that that place of play and to trust it um um because i think i think yeah like you were saying i could really relate to that experience of getting to the end of the first novel and saying to myself okay i really need to kind of like create a really structured framework about how i'm going to do this going forward to actually be able to maintain and just be productive just writing you know according to the time frames that i want to write to um, but what I've found is that I need to, and I'm slowly discovering a happy medium, hopefully, between the two where um, where there is some structure, there is some fore planning, but I'm trying to be more um, in that headspace of, of being of being happy about the uncertainty and, and seeing it as just a playful thing to do. And um, I think as long as I'm able to be in that space where I, I see it as play, rather than something that there's a contract attached to it or there's deadline attached to it. I try to forget about that kind of stuff and just sort of play with it. I find that I'm very productive that way. And when I, when I do try to be more structured, it's the opposite effect. So, um, yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think ultimately we do get to a place where we're all, we all exist in a spectrum and we try to hopefully occupy some hybrid form between the plotting planning structure and um, that playful space of just being able to allow the characters to kind of spontaneously do stuff and to surprise you. I guess, and I, 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 at least for me, I really need that sense of surprise and discovery to even feel like I'm writing anything that's good. Um, I think if it feels too, um, too planned and too structured to me, I, I find it difficult to to maintain interest as the writer. <laughs> uh, never mind trusting that the reader's going to be able to do that. So for me, I need to have a happy medium between the two. Yeah, that and rings then... so true. With um, I had Gareth L. Powell on uh, a oh, couple cool. of months ago, and he was talking how. He tried to like plot out an entire no novel and then write it, and he felt like he was just being someone else's secretary when he came to write <laughs> it. Like he'd already written the novel, you know, he'd already yeah. done the discovering, and he yeah. was just typing it up, and it didn't yeah. feel like writing to him anymore. Uh, and also, it's interesting what you say about that trying to find, trying to like, it's almost like you're trying to defend that space of play. Yeah, you know? that's the word. Because yeah. um, I had. Uh, uh, Guy Gunaratne was on uh, last month and was talking about him writing his second novel and In Our Madam Furious City has been like long listed for the, the booker so he's got all this pressure <laughs> on him and he said he had to basically he's made like a contract in his head where he says okay thanks everyone who's liked this first novel that's great now I need you to I'm going to go away I'm going to make something that might be nothing to do with what you've liked and when I come back I'm going to bring it out to you and if you if you if you hate it, that's that's fine. That's up to you. I'll find new people to like it. But to a certain extent, like screw you. This isn't for you. This is for me. And that's I how he's that. sort of trying to make that. I mean, I really I love that. Do you, that sounded I mean, a bit I, similar to what you were. I think it takes. I mean, I mean, his situation especially. I mean, I think it takes so much courage when you've had so much um, attention and love for what you've written. Um, to have that boldness to be like, okay, I'm going to lay all of that to one side and just really kind of maintain my integrity in terms of like that creative space that I need to be in in order to write. I mean, I think of people like, I mean, I don't know how people like JK Rowling ever did that, for example, but you know, I think it does take a degree of courage and boldness to be able to do that. And yeah, I think the word that you use there, defend, you need to defend that place of play because it's ultimately where all the good stuff comes from. 
and um, I think being able to trust that it's where all the good stuff comes from it, that's not something that I was able to do immediately at the outset as I was tr transitioning from Lost Gods into the sequel um, but it's something that I'm definitely into now and I think I have the, ad the added advantage of what I'm writing being a sequel because the world is already established I'm already working according to a continuum and a lot of the ideas that I was already kind of working towards in Lost Gods are what I'm getting to sort of play off right now anyway in this book so to a, cer to a certain extent I was already kind of set up for that but yeah you need to have that space where you're still um, having surprises where you're still discovering things where things still feel fresh and new and spontaneous to you otherwise what you're writing just won't feel alive and I think ultimately it feeling alive is the main point it's it takes it i think it I, I don't know like i always feel when i'm saying oh it takes a lot of guts to write i feel like i'm sort of self-mythologizing in a way that goes oh aren't we brilliant writers but it is <laughs> it, it, i think i'm probably with any creative project or with yeah. running a business where you've got to be creative or yeah. you know if you're running your own business and you have to think of new ways of working all of those things open yourself up to the risk of failure and the risk of making a prat out of yourself and we all look at people who've you know, we think of as being pretentious because they they took and what they did is take creative risks that maybe didn't always pay off. Um, do you have um, any advice for people who are listening, who are, you know, plugging away at their thing? Um, do you have any advice for them on how you get that work finished? Because it seems kind of crazy when you sit down and you write, you start writing the first page of something in your head that could be a novel. It just seems ludicrous, right? It seems like you are getting a spoon and you're plunk and you're trying to eat a mountain, and yeah. it just seems like <laughs> it seems nuts. And do, do you have any advice? Because you've now been through that process, and now you're, and now you're walking across to a second mountain and digging yeah. into that, right? Do you have any so advice for people who are listening? Um, I think for me, I mean, I feel so qualified to try and offer advice about it, but I think for me, um, it involves a lot of forgetting. It involves a lot of forgetting about where I'm trying to get to um, and just being able to be in the moment with what I'm writing. I think when I'm able to sort of make everything very small um, and just try to enjoy and be playful about the scene that I'm writing, the paragraph that I'm writing, the sentence that I write, and just being interested in that present moment with the characters and with the story, the words clock up by themselves and so I, I have a word count but not really I mean I, I kind of I hold it at arm's length um, I have a sort of guideline about where I want to get to but I find that the less I think about it the more I surpass it and so the more I'm just sort of with the characters and in the story and it's I don't know it's very very challenging to do it's very very difficult to do but I think the more you do it the more you get used to doing it and I think it is ultimately the thing that we all have to do as writers. We have to we have to forget about, you know, <laughs> the absurdity of what we're actually attempting to do a lot of the time and just try and make it a small a small thing in our own heads and just make it very personal and playful. I've got a really, really uh, nerdy but quite technical point of craft that I'd like <laughs> to ask you about. Um, reading Lost Gods, uh, it has the best uh fight scenes and action scenes i've read all year like i love the blocking <laughs> cool. in them i love how clear they are and <laughs> i you know i say this as someone who has the biggest complaint from my editor from my agent is always me writing long quite shitty fight scenes that i then have to cut out because <laughs> they don't make sense and they're not very good and and so i 
it, what the question boils down to is how 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 have you what can you talk a little bit about how you write a an action scene or a fight scene or any kind of because it's surprisingly difficult or at least i found it surprisingly difficult to just subscribe to describe two or more human beings moving in a space and make that as clear to a reader as it would be if say it was on film where you'd just be able to see the yeah. people or it was a panel in a comic yeah can you talk about that transposition into words it's funny you brought up the panel in the comic thing because that's i think that's a big part of the way i approach it i i think i don't think i try i think i i try to not necessarily make it clear to the reader i try to um give the snapshots in a fight scene and so i think probably probably my fight scenes are probably probably shorter than most maybe but hopefully they in the reader's mind they don't feel shorter than most hopefully they feel um clear and hopefully they feel like um things that they're actually able to see in motion and i guess you know that whole you know what you know when the jason bourne films first came out i know we're talking a lot about movies at the moment but uh, <laughs> when the jason bourne movies came out and the way in which you know paul greengrass would tr treat the cutting in fight scenes especially but just like snapping everything um and just moving from shot to shot before the first shot's even really finished um i think that's part of the way in which i, I write fight scenes in a way um i try to trust the reader <laughs> and hope and hope that they get it <laughs> but yeah i think in essence um you don't you you probably don't get to hear too much of the thoughts that are going through the character's head you probably don't get to hear or read too many of the emotions or what they're thinking you know that kind of thing you probably just see little snapshots of movements emotions and the reader is hopefully piecing that together in their own mind and getting a clear and vivid sense of what's going on. And and hopefully that gives it a sense of pace as well, because, I mean, fights are so chaotic anyway. Um, I just, I hopefully might hopefully find a way to try and convey it in a way that just feels very immediate and clear. I, it's, I think that's, you've just hit upon something that I don't think I've talked about in like a hundred plus episodes of this podcast I don't think we've really talked about much before but actually I think it's fundamental to good writing which is trust you talked about like you have trust in the reader to kind of get it and it's a little bit like trust in yourself as well I think there's a real confidence in and boldness in simplicity and in doing what's necessary and no more you know it's like the difference between a drummer who kind of like does like a massive drum solo drum fill and like twirls the sticks and keeps looking at the audience to see if they can see you get that I'm a good drummer right <laughs> as opposed to a drummer who's like prepared to like stop drumming for a moment to let the bass solo come in and then comes back in you know that will leave a silence can be much more powerful than a technically demanding drum fill and and also, I think you establish the characters' motivations and the stakes of the fight before we ever go into one. So you don't have to be doing that. You don't have to be stopping it to go, he knew if the blade came an inch closer, it would slit his throat. And then all his plans would be like, we know what's going on. That's we know so cool. who these people are or that it's going to be a, what the consequences are of failure. So it actually leaves you free to be quite... You know, like with Jason Bourne, we generally know who's after him, where he's trying to get to. And so we're free to just the, them to be actually very, very pure kind of distillations of what a fight is. Um, and, and I feel that's what's going on. With, it allows you to 
it's a kind of trust. It shows huge confidence in yourself, not arrogance, but just like real confidence in yourself as a writer that you're able to hold back. Can I ask, what, what was it like? Um, what was your experience of working with an editor like? Because that's what a lot of people who haven't been published um, haven't been through, is having a professional pair of eyes look over your work and give you feedback. What was that like for you? Oh, I mean, that's so cool and gratifying what you were saying, by the way, about the fire scenes, because I was trying to do that, but you never show whether or not you're actually properly pulling that off. But um, yeah, for me, I feel, I felt so fortunate actually, because I mean, my editor, Phil Jordan, Angry Robot, incredibly cool guy. And we would have conversations like the one that we're having now about the story over Skype and just basically, you know, discuss different elements of the narrative. And for me, I felt like I was really able to delve deeper into what I was already intending to do in the novel. So I think in those aspects of the, of the story where I felt less confident, um, I felt like he was able to kind of give me a clearer perspective of what I was intending to do. And there was a sense of resonance when he was giving input. So it wasn't one of these experiences that you, I guess people can have when, when somebody's not getting the story or not necessarily getting the intentions of the author. And you feel like there's a bit of a, a bit of a disconnect in that kind of conversation that you have over the story with, with, with Phil, there was very much a sense of resonance and very much a sense of recognizing what it, he what it is that he was telling me and the input that he was giving. So I feel really, really fortunate in that respect. And I think for me, um because for me with it with it being my first novel there were so many iterations of it that i went through i mean you get to a place i mean you'll, you'll know as well you get to a place with a manuscript where you've done like a hundred revisions and you can i can no longer see the wood from the trees i can no longer see this freshly like what it actually feels like to read anymore which is such a key thing for me as i was saying before because i like to be in that space as a reader even when i'm writing and so being able to kind of go through that editorial process, especially the structural edit aspect of it, where we were kind of looking at the that kind of macro perspective on the story, on the narrative itself, and and looking at what we felt like um, was working, what we need to give more attention to, what the reader might want to have more of. Um, I found that so so helpful, and and I think in our conversations, the primary stuff that we were talking about was was the world building. For me, before like I was saying earlier on in the conversation about. I was very mindful of not trying to allow my um, interest in the world to overwhelm the actual momentum of the story. And so I'd kind of got to a place with the manuscripts where I'd stripped all, everything back as much as possible. And I think for me, the editorial process really consisted of have, having um, being given a sense of permission. Actually, no, you can you can elaborate more here. You can give the reader more of this particular aspect of the world here. You can go into a little bit more detail. That's all right. And I'm like... Oh, well, well, great. <laughs> um, so, yeah, for me, it was a really, really fun process. It was a really fun process. It was really, um, it felt so weird to hear characters' names in somebody else's mouth. That was my first um, first encounter of that. And so it just felt like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> somebody else here talking about the characters. It's like, it's like, it's like you've been know. having this repeated dream for, like, yeah. months and months. And then one day you're casually, there's, like, um... Yeah. I'm just reading um, The Anubis Gates by Tim Powers, oh, uh, which I... has got like a time traveller in it, right? Right. And it's got this like scene where a guy's like walking through Victorian London oh. and in the crowd, he realises that there's another time traveller there with him because he's walking through the crowd in Victoria, London and he hears someone else, oh. he hears someone whistling, all you need is love. Right. <laughs> and, and that is the experience I had of having an editor discuss a character that I'd written. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, you're like, it's holy so cool. shit, someone else is here with me. Yeah, it's so, it, that is exactly it. That is exactly it, bro. It's so, so cool. And um, <laughs> it's a hugely exciting um, 
to me it's a hugely exciting thing because yeah like I said you, you're I mean the stuff that the stuff that I the stuff that I'm trying to do in the in the book that isn't working that he's able to point out but when he's like being able to kind of really elaborate on things that you're attempting to do but that you weren't sure whether that comes across quite right and he's like no no and, that, and you can you can see from the way he's talking about it that it does come across right it's just so so um it's a huge gratifying thing um and such a weird thing because you're not because writing is such a solitary thing in many ways i mean we have writers groups we have different people that we get to talk to about our stories hopefully but um ultimately it's you and the pen and the pad or it's you and the, and the screen that you're writing on and stuff and so when it gets to be opened out into this more public space and when you have an editor or other people reading it it's just a very at least for me it was a very strange and surreal experience um but in a good way yeah because that's when you actually see that's when that's when the like monster comes to life right yeah. like, that's when a book's <laughs> completed when another when someone reads it that's what it's yeah. kind of for and it's weird and it's also you also are like there's a point where you're kind of losing control of it as well you know yeah. people then read it and the characters are going to look different in their heads than what the ones you imagined they're going to have different suspicions about which one was their favorite what this person wanted they're going to take something slightly differently so this it's not just your world that's being created but you're now you've got this collaborator yeah 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 and it and it's and it's it's cool because um i i I try to write in a way or I try to kind of go through the experience for me where it would hopefully feel like a collaboration with this imaginary person out here that I'm writing to. Um, but yeah, when you get into, I mean, I don't know, you, when you have people talking to you about your novel and readers who have, who have enjoyed the story, but they, and then they see things in it that you didn't see and you're like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really interesting and stuff. And I'm, uh, and, and th there are times actually there's, uh, I mean, I won't, I won't mention specifics, but there's certain things which actually, um, of those kind of interactions which inform or have begun to shape just a little bit like certain things in the sequel as well because yeah sometimes readers have better ideas than you do <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I, didn't, I didn't think of that actually yeah that's really cool so uh, <laughs> it's been yeah, a little bit and, of that <laughs> yeah and you'll you definitely have and you can t and you're gonna you'll tell like more and more what bits because you'll just have you get like emails from people going holy shit and you're like oh you're on that bit right <laughs> <laughs> my favorite thing has been like um um like i've had a i've had a few friends who've been reading the novel and just literally them whatsapping me like at every page or chapter like, like <laughs> what's going on why is this happening what are you doing you know that kind of thing and stuff it's just been that's that's been like the most fun <laughs> yeah i definitely had i definitely had a moment of of reading it where i kind of like took my spectacles off and and, and like looked at the horizon and said like mother of god I was like, you know i was like whoa hang on because there's definitely some bits where it's you seem to be doing some like just like gentle kind of world building and then suddenly it's like whoa whoa fuck <laughs> like, it, it's, it's amazing and that's what's so that's what's so that's why it's like so beautifully poised um I'm gonna sort of want to. I just first of all, thank you so much for uh, giving up your time to talk oh, to me and, and share you. all your thoughts and insights. It's just, it's just great. Like doing this show is like scratching my own itch. It's just a way that I can really impertinently chat to writers I admire, uh -huh. whose works that I love, and go and get to hear and have a water cooler that we don't have. Oh much, you know? yeah, yeah. But the the final question, which is kind of kind of unfair but i just i'm really interested to hear your thoughts on it as a kind of uh fellow uh fantasy writer 
I just just kind of like a kind of state of the nation thing where you think fantasy is at at the moment and 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 where and where it's and where it and where it's going you know mm. like what you what you think of of it as a genre because for better or worse it's it's something that we write in or get kind of we're under that umbrella and i just wondered how you see fantasy at the moment and where you think it's headed yeah for me for me i'm i'm really excited about the genre just now and i'm really kind of excited about the various different things that people are trying now in the genre you know people you hear people talk about the way in which fantasy fiction or fantasy literature used to be and and it having you know these kind of you know staple tropes that people weren't really allowed to deviate from necessarily um whereas i feel like there's I feel like there's so many new, fresh, different kinds of voices that are coming into the genre right now that is really kind of stretching the paradigm for how we how we consider what fantasy literature is and what it can be. And um, people are being very experimental. And when you have like, I don't know, you have like an author like Nora K. Jemison, you know, winning the Hugo three years, three years in a row, basically, with, with books that are so... Um, I mean, yes, they do really kind of, you know, celebrate a lot of the the traditional elements of fantasy, but they're so kind of progressive, so far out there in terms of what they're doing and what they're trying, even technically, even structurally and stuff, just very experimental stuff. And people are getting it and people are really enjoying and celebrating it. And for me, that is just such a really, it's a really cool thing. And so, yeah, I'm very excited about fantasy literature. I think we're in this space where, especially when people have conversations around um, diversity, where there's an openness and there's an accommodation of it and there's a, an appreciation of what diversity can mean to the genre and the ways in which it can um, forward things for all of us and stuff in terms of like the stuff that we read and the stuff that we write because I mean story is so important right I mean story is just such a such a powerful and impactful and profound aspect you know without sort of getting too pretentious or you know whatever about it it's, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And so the fact that we're having these new perspectives come into the genre, I think is really, really cool. Um, what I really hope happens going forward in the future is that we, we get into a space where we're really able to kind of celebrate and, and um, empower everybody to write whatever they want to write. Um, there's this little, I mean, I've been to a couple of conventions where some of the questions that get asked sometimes is there's a thing where people are kind of becoming resistant to allowing people from a certain background to write certain things. And um, so, you know, saying, oh, well, if someone's a white middle class male, then they can't write about X, Y or Z, which I don't agree with. And so I'm hopeful that we we learn how to be more accommodating of diversity, but without taking away the diversity of the individual author themselves in terms of what they feel able or permitted to write about. Um, I think that's a big deal. So, um, can I just ask you to elaborate on that a little, a, a little bit? I think, I think, I think we're in this space where we're having conversations about diversity in a more intentional way, and I think because we're doing that, it's, it's, it's um, allowing us the opportunity to kind of bump up against all sorts of ideas about what it should look like. And so, representation is like a big thing that people are talking about and discussing at the moment, which you know I'm obviously all for. Um, but I think on the other end of the spectrum, when it's carried too far, what some of the things that people begin to mention, and it's not like a, it's not like a, a major thing, but some of the things that people perhaps begin to suggest is that you can only write about, for example, you can only write about, let's say, a medieval East African context if you actually come from that culture, which isn't something that I agree with. And I understand that there's been examples in the past of 
um, authors who've written about context that are not their own and they've written about it in a way that is either insensitive or that is wrong or that is just, you know, derogatory in whatever form or fashion. And, you know, there's different examples that come to mind of that. But I don't think that, that those examples are reasons behind which we should then begin to, you know, introduce these kind of unspoken tacit policies or mandates which restrict or constrain what authors can or can't write. Um, for me, some of the most powerful things that I've written, I mean, for example, I mentioned the book before, Black Man, and one of the things that I love about that novel is that he manages to capture something of um, something of the black male experience that is very nuanced and very difficult to really capture and convey that in a story and actually make it a part of the premise that he integrates into the way the narrative works as well, into the actual the, the way the world works as well in that story. And he does it in a way that is really authentic and that really resonates for me and me reading that and then discovering that the author is not a black guy, <laughs> but a white middle class guy from, um, I think it's from Oxfordshire or somewhere like that, you know, for me, that was very, very, I think it's a very affirming and gratifying and precious thing to have that kind of reading experience where you're able to recognize that somebody's been able to empathize with your context and place himself in your shoes to a certain extent. And I... For me, I think that's what the work of writing is ultimately about. You know, whatever the genre is, I think writing is ultimately about empathy. It's about being able to imagine and place yourself in other people's worlds or context or characters or experiences in such a way that actually feels authentic and recognisable and resonant to a reader. And I think when somebody's able to do that, it's such a powerful thing that we shouldn't have, um, yeah, we shouldn't have, you know, unspoken policies that, that, that mean that a novel like Black Man can't exist. Um, because I think that's such an important thing um, to exist. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where I come from on it, really. Yeah, I think it's like, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, like, if someone does a novel about, say, pirates, um, they then often they c you can get away with making the pirates quite, you could do quite a funny one where they're kind of stereotypes and going, yahar, my hearties. <laughs> and there's not like, there's not like a group of pirates well, there are pirates nowadays, but there's, you know, that that's historical. And also, I mean, even then the stereotypes are probably covering up a much richer and more interesting history of piracy than you can get with just the kind of joke comic yeah. stock characters. But it's not, it's not really hurting anyone to have a stereotype of, say, like a pirate or even like a stereotype of like a posh earl. Mm. Um, um but it's i suppose i suppose what's what's kind of like still kind of like big in people's minds are things mm. like movies like i guess like avatar is like my example of something that has that just seems so <laughs> such like such mm. like lazy appropriation of like a mix of different cultural mm. tropes that are just all kind of like stuck together mm. um for then mm. for then just like a, a a white dude to go in and be like a hero yeah. and rescue these people in, yeah. in a way that seems very much calculated to be a kind of fantasy for a yeah. kind of like for a white male audience. Yeah. And, and, and so it might also be about like who, who we're writing to please, I guess is like what to I me totally is what's agree. interesting just because otherwise the stories are quite dull, you know, I yeah. mean, maybe it's even my, my problem isn't really offense uh, so much as, I'm kind of bored of those stories. I feel like they've already been told. Right. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. And I think, I think, I mean, I think an instance like that, I think it's, so I guess for me, I wouldn't necessarily put that down to, I don't know, the demographic or socioeconomic background of the person who's creating the story. I, for me, I think it's about their, 
their ability as a storyteller. I think if somebody's able to immerse themselves in a in a context or in a world that isn't their own to the extent and do the do the work, do the research, do the actually treat what it is that they're trying to convey in their story with with the care and with the passion and with the attention that's due to it. Um, I think that's just good storytelling. And I think when we when people are unable to do that, and I'm not for a moment suggesting that James Cameron isn't a good storyteller, the guy's amazing, but you know, I think when people are unable to do that, I don't think that's necessarily just down to a person's background. I think it's about their skill as a creator or their skill as a storyteller. And I think, so I do I, I agree, I do agree that there should be limits on what, like there's limits for me about what I can tell a story about and what I can't tell a story about. But I don't think that the limits are necessarily defined by my background or cultural context or whatever else. I think it's more defined by, okay, how good can I be as an author to actually communicate this in a way that is, um, that this does give proper attention and care to the context of the world and to um, the experiences of the people who belong to that context and communicates them in a way that, that is actually authentic rather than just derivative or rather than just, you know, my own, my own ego trip into whatever, you know? Um, so I think, I think, I think when we make it about, how good is the author um, rather than where are they from necessarily? I mean, that stuff does matter. Don't get me wrong. That stuff does matter. And, and obviously people can have advantages about how they can tell certain stories on the basis of where they're from. But I just don't think that necessarily that we should restrict um, what people can tell stories about. I think we just make it about the skill of the author and, and let the chips fall where they may to a certain extent, at least anyway. Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, like because Nathan, like you say, is a character written from the inside out. Mm. is he's he's a character who's written and it, and he's not he's not, he's not he's kind of not rep, you know <laughs> as much as like people can represent ideologies yeah. there he's a character he's a character who is written authentically for him because you discovered him as you wrote him mm. and maybe that's uh mm. I, I i my feeling is that a character who is well and honestly written and it's written where, with that closeness, with that attentiveness that you talked about of you yeah. listening to the character and thinking about the world through their eyes and stuff. It's it's certainly harder to fuck that up. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. I think that's I think that's the nail on the head. I think that's the nail on the head. I think I think it's empathy. I think it's empathy at the end of the day. I mean, like for me, I don't know. Reading something like. Um, I don't know, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness is like just an annoying thing to read. Um, him kind of going into this West African context and just treating everybody as like some kind of subhuman um, entity in the world. Um, but I think when somebody really kind of comes at something in an honest, empathetic way, you can have great storytelling, you can have great worlds, you can have great novels. And and uh, I think that, I just think that matters. Yeah. Um. Thank you so much. Micah, for um, speaking thank you to for having me, thank you me for having and me. parenthetically us today. Um, <laughs> I really, really appreciate it. I'll, I'm going to put a link to uh, Lost Gods in the show notes. Everyone who's listening, if you'd like to uh, support Micah and support the show, um, click on that. You can get a copy with uh, with um, uh, free postage or go to your uh, local bricks and mortar indie bookshop and, and, and get it and order it in. Um, it's, it's really really good um i would sort of <laughs> i would sort of make sure you're not around people who um are gonna mind you swearing uh while you're reading it because a number of times i like looked up and went <laughs> like well fuck 
<laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> it's it's good that like my daughter doesn't really understand swearing yet. She's not. She, she turns two this week, so there's only a few more weeks I can get away with it before she starts copying me. But, um... And yeah, um, thanks very much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've had an absolute blast on the show. Thank you, man. Awesome. Okay, everyone, take care. Good luck with your writing, and I will see you next time.